fascination and silencing critics, enemies of Kremlin power, have come back. What the early death of Alexei Navalny suggests about Vladimir Putin. For Saturday, February 17th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Camila Dominoski. Ahead, how guidance counselors are helping students figure out the new FAFSA. Also, some critics of electric vehicles say they just don't work in the cold, but frigid drives tease apart truth from fiction. Through the years, we have tested this in the winter. The best had only 4% loss of range, and the worst is 36 And the writer, dancer, and musician Brontez Purnell on the language of the body. To have a mind and to have a body and Dear God, to get both those things to work at the same time takes a lot of work. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Alexei Navalny's spokesperson has confirmed that the Russian opposition leader died at a remote Arctic penal colony yesterday. Kiri Yarmish says his mother received official notification of his death, but that it is not clear where the body is. Navalny's team is demanding his body be returned to the family immediately, but officials say that won't happen until tests are completed. His wife, Yuliana, is attending the Munich Security Conference, where she met with Vice President Harris. I met with his wife, Yulia, yesterday and expressed my outrage and sorrow. In this fight, and I will say that um, Alexei Navalny has been a brave leader who stood up against corruption and autocracy, and he stood up for the truth. Meanwhile, Russian authorities arrested hundreds of mourners who came to lay flowers and memorials to victims of Soviet-era purges. With U.S. military aid delayed for months now, President Biden today spoke by phone with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, reiterating the U.S.'s support for Ukraine. This as Zelensky warned that an artificial deficit of weapons will give Russia breathing room. He spoke in Munich hours after Ukraine pulled its forces out of the eastern town of Avdika, handing Russia its first major battlefield success since last summer. The BBC's Andrew Harding has more. Ukrainian forces are pulling out of Avdiivka after one of the longest and bloodiest battles of the war. Ukraine's top military commander said Russian troops had almost encircled the town and he was withdrawing his forces in order to prevent them from being surrounded. This is a significant moment for the Kremlin, its first major battlefield success since last summer. Avdiivka itself is not much of a prize, but its fall will strengthen Russia's chances of pushing on towards more strategic towns in the region. The BBC's Andrew Harding reporting. The U.S. House is balking at passing a $95 billion bipartisan bill for aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. The Department of Veterans Affairs is trying to fix a glitch in the VA's home loan process that has put 40,000 vets in danger of foreclosure. And Pierce Quill Lawrence has more. The VA offered what's called a forbearance during the pandemic. It allowed people to temporarily skip mortgage payments. But VA abruptly canceled that program, and lenders started demanding all the missed payments immediately. Iraq veteran Edmund Garcia said he's being threatened with foreclosure after he took the VA's offer of help. They said that they were going to keep my payments comparable to what I was paying. They told veterans that they were going to help them. I want them to honor it. At a congressional hearing this week, the VA said it was working on a fix that will let veterans resume their normal payments, but gave few details on how the process will work. VA says it will be ready by May. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. 
The supermarket chain Big Y is alerting customers about skimming devices that were recently found at 10 of its stores in Massachusetts. Those are devices that can steal financial information. The Springfield-based grocer said that between December 19th and December 21st, an unknown person put a skimming device at its stores, mostly in the western part of the state. Big Y officials say all store terminals have since been inspected. Skimming devices were also found at five supermarkets run by Roach Brothers back in December. Well, if you're heading on the MBTA's Orange Line tonight, keep in mind shuttle buses are replacing service between Forest Hills and Ruggles all weekend. Crews will be performing signal work on the tracks. People can also ride the commuter rail for free between Forest Hills, Ruggles, Back Bay and South Station. A new exhibit exploring climate change through art opened today at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Our Time on Earth imagines the climate future through sculpture, fashion, and other mediums. The exhibit is on loan from a museum in London. Jane Winchell is director of the Peabody Essex Museum Art and Nature Center. She says she hopes the exhibit offers visitors another way of considering climate change. I think uh, many of us can feel pummeled by sort of statistics and charts and what we often don't get as much access to is the messaging that's out there of wow there is so much to be saved. The special exhibit runs through June. A Rye, New Hampshire homeowner is giving up his historic 2,000-square-foot home for free, but there's a catch. The homeowner is planning to redevelop his land but doesn't want to demolish the home built in 1826. He's offering it for free to anyone who can move it to a new spot. We're looking at clear skies tonight, low 20s, another blustery day for tomorrow, partly sunny, near 36. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Camila Dominoski, in for Scott Detrow. We begin tonight's program with a closer look at the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He died Friday in a remote Russian penal colony. There's still a lot we don't know about the circumstances of his death, but many people, including President Biden, suspect Russian President Vladimir Putin is responsible. Putin is infamous for crushing dissent. Journalist Luke Harding knows this well. He's a correspondent for The Guardian who's covered Russia for years and says that Navalny was unique among Russian dissidents. He was actually a kind of Western-style guy who understood technology. He understood how to tweet. And he made extraordinary kind of videos exposing corruption at the top of the Kremlin, clicked by by millions of people. He could could connect with people um, in a way that no other modern Russian politician could. So what might Navalny's death tell us about Russian politics? Luke Harding spoke with co-host Mary Louise Kelly, and they began by talking about the significance of Navalny's death. I mean, I think the big picture is that these methods, uh, KGB methods, communist methods of assassination and silencing critics, enemies of Kremlin power, have come back big time. An awful lot of uh, Vladimir Putin's critics have died both inside Russia and abroad. I I wrote a a book called A Very Expensive Poison 
about Alexander Litvinenko, who was an officer in the FSB, the, the spy agency that, that Putin used to run before he became prime minister and president. Um, and yeah, he was killed with radioactive tea. There, there was another case. Just to pause, because people are, may, may not remember the full details. That was back in 2006 in London. And yes, he... Uh... Yeah. And then more recently, we've seen Sergei Skripal, a, a Russian defector, also poisoned. He survived by, by two assassins sent to a sleepy cathedral town called Salisbury. So Also in England, sure. Also in England. There's nothing surprising about Navalny's death. I think we can say pretty emphatically it was it was murder. That's certainly what his friends believe, his allies believe, what Western governments are saying. Um, and what, what we know from previous cases and actually from a public inquiry um, in the UK into the death of Litvinenko is that um, Western governments, the American governments believe that Putin personally authorizes these operations. In other words, you can't kill people on a freelance basis if they're if they're critics of, of of the czar of the president you need an order from the top so so i think responsibility for for navalny's death um sits with putin i'll do journalistic due diligence and just note there is so much we don't know about the circumstances here so much we may never know um it is possible that he fell over while taking a walk, which is the version the Kremlin is putting out there. It must be stated that he uh, he would not have been walking around a, a remote uh, penal colony had he not been uh, detained, imprisoned, and, and held in isolation for so long. I mean, what fits or does not with the Kremlin playbook based on, for example, some of the cases you've just laid out? Well, I mean, I mean what fits is the fact that there's, there's going to be no proper in investigation. I mean, what, what's happened in Russia since I was there more than a decade ago is that it's gone from being an authoritarian state to a totalitarian state where all dissent is a crime, where, where Putin has unleashed this murderous war two years ago, full-scale invasion of, of, of Ukraine, and where human life counts for, for, for very little. So, so the full facts, yeah, in, in the American sense or the British sense of the word, I, I don't think we're going to get until uh, the regime collapses if it does collapse or, or, or ever. But but what we can draw are conclusions from previous episodes and from the fact that that I think you can say with confidence pretty much all of Vladimir Putin's uh, opponents, domestic political opponents, are either in exile or or, or they're they're dead. Um, and that's the way that Putin likes it. And and the other thing to note is that there's a there's an election coming up now. Now, whenever you talk about elections in in Russia, you have to do kind of air quotes. It's elections in inverted commas. But Putin is standing for president next month. The people around him are, are deeply paranoid and conspiratorial, and and they, they hated Navalny. They regarded him as a threat and an irritant. And now he's gone, as, as Stalin said, "No man, no problem." Huh. I mean, and I guess we'll we'll throw in that Navalny himself has been poisoned and targeted before the the whole Novichok incident. Yeah, and and exactly. I mean, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to to see who might be responsible. Back in 2020, Navalny was campaigning in southern Russia for for elections, urging voters to vote for any party but the ruling party of Vladimir Putin, the United Russia Party. And we we know that he collapsed on an airplane. Um, he was poisoned with Novichok, which is this this horrendously toxic nerve agent. Um, doctors revived him after the plane made an emergency landing, and he recuperated in Berlin. And even more extraordinarily, he then managed to call up one of his 
poisoners who, who turned out to be working for the FSB, the, the spy agency which had been shadowing Navalny for, for years, for about three years, following him to public engagements and meetings. And um, in an element which seems almost farcical, were it not so serious, it, seems, it turns out that they, they poisoned his underpants. So, so he survived that, and, and yet he, he decided to go back to Russia. If this was murder that resulted in Navalny's death, why now? Because Navalny, is, as you note, has been speaking out against the Kremlin, against Vladimir Putin personally for years. Well, I, mean, I think there are two compelling reasons to the question, why now? One is upcoming presidential elections in Russia, which Putin is bound to win, but um, by by sweeping away Navalny, that they that, that means the Kremlin can avoid any embarrassing scenes, any public protests, um, which might might mar the vote. But I think the the, the other um, extraordinary factor is international, and particularly what's happening in the United States. I think Putin feels he's got the wind in his sails um, on the battlefield in Ukraine. His troops are slowly going forward. They, they've regained the initiative. They're, they're taking territory bit by bit. Um, and in, in, in Washington, we have the spectacle of Donald Trump saying that he's not going to defend um, the U.S.'s NATO allies if he becomes president again. And we have Republicans in Congress holding up, blocking billions of dollars of vital aid to Ukraine. So I think Putin, he, he's KGB. He has a gift for, for sending out weakness in his adversaries, I think he thinks that America is is weak and divided, that, that the Europeans will, will suck this up. There'll be words of condemnation, statements protesting Navalny's death or, or, or murder, but that ultimately he will prevail. Um, and then this sort of great battle as he sees it for, for the 21st century, for, for um, the world order, that, that Russia is winning. Oh, is your assessment that based on his decision to go back to Russia, even after he had been poisoned, he understood that there was a target on his back? I mean, I think he he he, he did. He knew perfectly well what, what Putin was capable of. He knew that by mocking Putin, by calling him, for example, a um, thieving little man in a bunker and grandpa, he knew that that he was courting sort of terrible retribution from, from the regime and it's its servants. And yet he did it anyway. And, and he had a mission. He had he had a calling. And, and lots of his friends, when he was recuperating in Germany in 2020, said, look, Alexei, don't go back. Don't go back. They'll kill you. He did it anyway. I think he thought that, that in exile, if he'd ended up in, in, in D.C. or in a kind of think tank, U.S. think tank, he would have become irrelevant. And as it was, he wanted to be with his people. I mean, he was actually a patriot, I would say, in the best sense of the word, and that, that he believed in Russia, but he believed in the sort of plural Russia, a more, a more tolerant and humane Russia. And unfortunately, the, the, the Russia that he envisaged, that he fought for, is still a very, very long way away. Luke Harding is senior international correspondent for The Guardian newspaper. Among his many books about Russia is one titled Mafia State. Luke Harding, thank you. Thank you. If you ask humanitarian aid groups how it's going these days, they'll tell you they're facing a big problem. There are just too many ongoing crises in the world and not enough funding to help those in need. 
As NPR's, as NPR's Gabriel Spitzer reports, many aid groups say they aren't expecting this funding shortfall to change anytime soon. Each year, the United Nations appeals to its member states for money to respond to crises around the world, things like emergency food aid and temporary shelter. Last year, it got just 40 percent of the donations it requested. This year, the U.N. asked for less, not because the needs have decreased, but because they're expecting another year of belt tightening. I think the outlook for humanitarian funding globally is is pretty bad right now. Leslie Archambeau directs humanitarian policy at Save the Children U.S. I am pretty concerned. Uh, I think everybody is very concerned. The U.N. estimates that 300 million people are in need of aid. That's grown as ongoing conflicts stack up in Sudan, Myanmar, and elsewhere. I live in fear of opening up my email every morning and what else has happened. That is going to kind of make things worse. And just to be quite frank, the the system is, is really not set up to respond to some of these crises that last a decade. Humanitarian funding tends to be short term and limited in what it can pay for. Kate Catch is a practitioner fellow at the University of Virginia and a former humanitarian affairs officer at the UN. At the end of the day, we have to look at longer term solutions as opposed to just leaving it to the humanitarians to try and keep putting band-aids on the problem. Aid groups are preparing for what may be the leanest year since 2010. Catch says the funding shortfall is already affecting people. It's very tangible. There's more risk of starvation. Food rations have to be halved. People get more waterborne diseases. It's really important for people to understand how destitute it is for a lot of these communities when the funding doesn't come in. Catch and others say preventing these crises will depend on investments that international development groups can make, but humanitarian responders cannot. Gabriel Spitzer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, with John Proctor as the villain, a touching and bitingly funny new comedy, now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion, HuntingtonTheater.org. It's 518, coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. We explore humanity in all its imperfections, lost baggage, Kool-Aid mishaps, and not eating enough fruit. Stay with us for the whole gamut of human imperfection, next on the radio and the WBUR app. A New York judge has ordered the Trump Organization to pay more than $355 million for inflating his wealth on financial statements. Follow the news this weekend on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden today reiterated the U.S.'s commitment to continue supporting Ukraine in a call with President Volodymyr Zelensky. This as the House has yet to pass the $95 billion bipartisan Senate aid bill. In California, highway officials say a six-mile stretch of the famous Pacific Coast Highway will be closed at night indefinitely for repairs from damage from recent storms. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he wants to build an 80-acre military base camp in an area where the state is contesting the federal government's sole authority at the southern border. 
I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at MacFound.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Camila Dominoski. In my normal job, I cover cars and energy for NPR, especially electric cars. And lately, I've been hearing a lot of questions about how well EVs handle cold weather. In part, that's because of a debacle in Chicago last month. Nothing, no juice, it's still on zero percent. And this is like three hours this morning being out here. Dozens of EVs sitting in the cold, waiting for a chance to Charging stations, they're not working. Charging equipment failures and high demand, including from rideshare drivers, created huge lines at fast chargers. Some cars were left stranded. That was unusual. Normally what happens in the cold is chargers do work just slower. And EVs drive, but not as far. In fact, EVs might lose a quarter or even half their range in very cold weather, but some cars lose more than others. So which EVs do better? To answer that question, every winter, the Norwegian Auto Federation, NAF, sends a bunch of different EVs up into the mountains, driving over snow-covered roads through miserable winds. This is the sound of the cars setting off a few weeks ago. It was about 14 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 10 Celsius. That's not so cold in Norway, especially not in the mountains. Not so cold, says Nils Sodal with NAF. The cars drove north from Oslo to see how far they got before the batteries died and trucks towed them to a charger. The goal is to help drivers in cold places make informed decisions when they're car shopping. Sodal says this annual event is fun, albeit freezing. And this year it featured a big surprise. The winner, the car that lost the least range, was the Chinese Hi-Fi Z, a brand new vehicle that Sodal says could be a character in Pixar's Cars franchise. A little bit futuristic uh, bad boy. <laughs> that futuristic bad boy almost hit its official range. That's impressive because batteries don't like the cold. They like the same temperatures we do, around 70 degrees, ideally. As it gets colder, they deliver less power. That's why they can't drive as far. So that question, how well do EVs handle the cold? Well, it depends. Through the years, we have tested this in the winter. The best had only 4% loss of range, and the worst is 36 and a lot in between. From 4% loss to 36, a big range. In addition to that Chinese bad boy, this year the BMW i5 and Kia EV9 performed pretty well. Kia and some Chinese automakers also crushed it in NAF's winter charging tests, which looks at how quickly cars fast charge in the cold. In Norway, more than 90% of new cars are electric. Sodal owns two EVs, and he says losing some range in the winter, it's not a big problem. A little irritating, maybe, if you need to make an extra charging stop on a long trip. 
But what's irritating to an ordinary driver could be a deal breaker for a company. A commercial vehicle, they're not making money if the wheels are not turning. Keith Brandis is with Volvo Group, which makes big rigs. These trucks are expected to operate for 10 or 11 hours during the workday. Electrifying heavy trucking is hard because, well, the trucks are heavy. They require huge batteries. But it's also important because big trucks have a very big carbon footprint per vehicle. Volvo Group is producing an electric big rig, the VNR. And to help sell that big rig, the company has tapped academic researchers to figure out exactly how weather affects the vehicle's range. Morning. How are you doing? Matt Egan is with the University of Minnesota. Before dawn on a recent winter day, he met up with driver Mike Ferrissey, with a microphone running, to head out for another test. Are you ready to go? Or you I'm, I'm ready. He's collecting real-world data on the truck to build models that predict precisely how far it can go at any temperature, so trucking companies know which routes the VNR can handle. This time, Ferrissey was carrying styrofoam molding. They load the electric 18-wheeler with all kinds of things. This drive was peaceful. No roaring winds on a mountain. There's uh, sunrise coming up right now, which is kind of nice. Pretty clear day. Equipment measured how the truck was using power as it went. Egan says the real-world data is really important. Different payloads, different routes, different weather. And you can get some of that in a lab setting, but it's difficult to account for everything. That's why he tests this truck in both Texas heat waves and Minnesota winters. 230 miles and one charging stop later, Egan and driver Ferrisee were back at Murphy Trucks, plugging the big rig in. So it could recharge, ready to drive out again, no matter the weather. Answering questions about how EVs drive in winter addresses one concern of would-be buyers. Another big one, the biggest one, in fact, according to surveys from J.D. Power, is access to charging. Most electric vehicle drivers charge at home most of the time. But what if you don't have a garage or a driveway, or you're away from home? Then you're stuck with public chargers that too often are broken, or in some places don't exist. Lots of people are working on solutions to that problem. I spoke with two of them yesterday. Maricela McKinsey of Charger Help, which helps keep public chargers running. Hi. And Tia Gordon of It's Electric, which works to help cities become more EV-friendly by adding curbside charging. Hey, it's great to be here. I started by asking Tia about the challenge posed by permitting, that is, getting permission to put a charger on a city street. It's a brave new world in EV charging. As you kind of set up in the beginning of this, there's sort of three big categories. There's home charging, which is how most people charge. There's fast charging on highways and rest stops. But then there's cities, and that's the space that's been largely ignored. And it's been ignored because it's somewhat the hardest nut to crack. So we need to find ways for companies to work with cities, with states, and with the federal government to create these larger frameworks for how to do something that's pretty simple. It's like putting a bike rack on the curb. It's not a big deal when you're looking at smaller footprint hardware. You just need the permission to do so. Getting public charging that works is a major priority of the Biden administration. Maricela, what is the administration doing and is it working? Um, yes, so what they've done is they've set aside money for the states to be able to make sure that chargers are working. So taking existing charging infrastructure and 
getting them from a maybe a non-operational or partially operational status and providing funding so that we can get them working and make them accessible, uh, you know, to, to people everywhere. I wanted to ask about the some of the benefits of switching to electric vehicles, which, you know, reduction in air pollution, help to slow the pace of climate change. These are things that are a collective good. But so far, EVs have mostly been luxury cars that are produced so far. They're mostly sold to people who live in richer and whiter neighborhoods. The most charger access is in richer neighborhoods. Tia, if your model for expanding curbside charging depends on finding a, a building that has the capacity that, that you can use for these EVs, that's not necessarily going to track with where it would be most helpful, maybe especially to a low-income community, to, to get a charger, right? How, how can communities make sure these chargers go in places where they can help expand equitable access to these benefits? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's the other side of the coin to our model. Because it's electric powers its chargers from spare capacity in buildings, and we're typology agnostic. It's a single family house. It's a house of worship. It's a school. It's a library. It's a commercial building. Um, we then revenue share back to that building, a per percentage of the revenue that we earn from each of our chargers. So we want to move into low and middle income communities to bring this amenity where it's no longer a NIMBY and not in my neighborhood, but it's a yes in my neighborhood, because not only are we bringing infrastructure that was previously lacking, but we're also bringing, quote, the, the green of the green economy into the pockets of everyone that lives in these communities. It's a win-win on both sides. And Maricela, how do you think about distributing the benefits of, of EV chargers more broadly and what the role that Charger Help can play? We're playing a really fantastic role on the learning and development side of things. And so we know there's growth here. We know, you know, last year, 1.2 million EVs were sold and the infrastructure is starting to go in, you know, urban areas and rural areas all over. And we're going to need people to make sure that these stations are up and running. And we're going to offer these opportunities to folks that maybe never pictured themselves working in tech. And so our learning and development is doing fantastic work, partnering with, you know, with companies like It's Electric and teaching folks, you know, going through a pretty rigorous course on how to become a certified EVSE technician. And as a matter of fact, we worked with the Society of Automotive Engineers to develop the, um, you know, industry-wide agreed-upon curriculum that supports taking a test that will get um, EV charger technicians certified. So really trying to standardize the work that can be done in this industry to increase reliability and also create a lot more jobs and prepare people for these jobs. So we're really excited. We're, we've got partnerships with um, Ford's Michigan Central in Detroit, Pasadena City College in California, Goodwill Industries in Atlanta, and um, really kind of spreading this knowledge and this expertise into lots of different areas. Well, Maricela McKenzie of Charger Help, Tia Gordon of It's Electric, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a tough year for high school seniors figuring out how to pay for college. That's because the bungled rollout of this year's FAFSA, or the free application for federal student aid, means they'll have less time to fill it out and then calculate how much college will cost. The delayed FAFSA is making the process more complicated, not just for students, but also those trying to help them. From GBH in Boston, Kirk Carapeza reports. 
Surrounded by many college pennants, counselor Caitlin Cerna puts in long hours assisting students struggling with college expenses. She meets with them one-on-one inside her cramped office at the Henderson Inclusion School here in Boston's Dorchester neighborhood. Well, you can just open up the dock. Which, which one? The dock, the supplement dock. Oh. The delayed and troubled rollout of this year's FAFSA has left Cerna scrambling to help her seniors fill out these forms before they make their college decisions in May. First, the government came out with the new form at the end of December, three months later than expected. Then, once it was out, it contained a big mistake calculating how much federal aid students would get. It didn't account for inflation. Fixing that blip could now delay award letters until April at the earliest. Cerna says trying to help dozens of students complete all of this paperwork by college's financial aid deadlines has been time-consuming and frustrating. I want to provide the best college and career support for my students that I can. I'm only one person and we only really have like the school day. So it's just time is limited and working one-on-one with students is the most effective way to reach them. And I fear there will be some students who fall through the cracks. Some students might not get the attention they need filling out the notoriously complicated form and just give up. Others might not choose to go to college at all if they don't know what kind of federal aid they qualify for soon. This all comes as fewer Americans are choosing college straight out of high school, in part because they say it's unaffordable. It's a huge mess. Bob Bardwell is executive director of the Massachusetts School Counselors Association. He says students in wealthy suburbs tend to have more college advising, whether it's public school counselors or paid private advisors. They're definitely going to be haves and have-nots, but it's just poor timing. The three-month delayed release of the FAFSA could result in fewer students enrolling. Brendan Williams is a vice president with the nonprofit USPIRE, which works with school counselors. He points out most students in the U.S. need to know what college will cost before committing. It could force them to make decisions that they didn't really want to make because most folks cannot afford to pay out of pocket for college. The Education Department announced recently it would provide additional funding to help high-need colleges hire more staff to process applications more quickly. Speaking to reporters, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona said the new form, although late, is transformational. We know some colleges will struggle with this more than others. We're determined to get it right. We must and we will. The strategy, though, won't directly help high school counselors on the front lines. Please, only seniors here allowed. Back at the Henderson School in Dorchester, Caitlin Cerna is the only college counselor for about 70 seniors. Most of them say they plan to go to college, so that's a lot of paperwork. Were you able to get some work done on the Fitchburg supplement? I'm trying my best out here to get almost like 100% completion rate, but it's still really just me. For now, the messy FAFSA rollout has left students like Harry Ramlochin in limbo. You want to go to a school that offers like good money, but also you're getting a good education. With the delayed FAFSA, though, he'll have less time to decide where to go to college and how to pay for it. For NPR News, I'm Kirk Carapeza in Boston. This is NPR. A spokeswoman for Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has confirmed his death in an Arctic penal colony Friday. Many allies of the activist, world leaders, and Kremlin watchers are blaming the Russian government for his death. A Kremlin spokesman vehemently denied those accusations. Still, Navalny is far from the only Kremlin critic to die in suspicious circumstances. NPR's international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam is here to talk to us about the fate of others who dared cross Russian President Vladimir Putin. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Camila. 
First of all, why do many think there's something suspicious about Navalny's death? Well, he appeared in court Thursday, the day before he died, and by all accounts appeared healthy and in good spirits. And Navalny even managed to send a Valentine's wish to his wife. Less than 24 hours later, he collapses and dies. And the thing is, Navalny had been poisoned before while on a flight from Siberia to Moscow a few years ago with a nerve agent called Novichok. He survived. But, you know, clearly Navalny was a target of the Russian government. He was a fierce and outspoken critic of Putin. And other people who have challenged the Russian president over the years have paid for it. You know, whether it being shot or poisoned or dying in a suspicious plane crash or even falling to their death out of a window. Right. And Navalny certainly would have seen what happened with those other Putin critics over the years. Can you tell us more about them? Uh, You know, there are some incidents straight out of a spy novel. For example, Sergei Skripal, he was an ex-Russian spy who was convicted of working for British intelligence. And he and his daughter were found collapsed on a bench in the UK after being injected with Novichuk. Another spy who ran afoul of Putin, Alexander Litvinenko, died from a radioactive substance called polonium. And that was after having tea with two Russian agents in London. Boris Nemtsov, an opposition figure, He was shot, as well as investigative journalist Anna Polakovskaya, an oil tycoon named Ravil Maganov, who called for the end to the invasion of Ukraine. He fell to his death from a sixth-floor window of a Moscow hospital. And then last year, Evgeny Prigozhin, who was the head of the Wagner mercenary group, he died when the plane he was flying in exploded in midair after it left Moscow. You know, that was shortly after Prigozhin spearheaded an uprising, challenging Putin's handling of the Ukraine war. And Camilla, the list goes on and on. Has the Russian government ever admitted to being behind these killings or even investigated them? You know, I spoke with uh, Nicole Bibin Sadaka, and she's the executive vice president of Freedom House, which tracks the Kremlin and these types of incidents. And she said the Kremlin always blames these uh, things on random accidents or something similar, and that there's never really been a serious investigation. You know, Sadaka says these types of killings are getting more brazen, and that they highlight two things about Putin. Here she is here. One, that he is desperate to keep silent anyone who is going to challenge his power or unveil the corruption and the brutality that has characterized his regime. Second is just the brutality. You know, he has absolutely no limits to the extent that he will go to kill people. And I do believe he thinks that he will be unaccountable. And Camilla Sadaka says now may be the opportunity for the world to hold Putin and his regime accountable. But it's hard to say if that will happen. Um, she also said Putin will likely hope Navalny's death will help silence any other critics. But that, you know, the Russian human rights community is extraordinarily courageous and there could be others to step in to fill the void left by Navalny. That's NPR's international affairs correspondent, Jackie Northam. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up in about 20 minutes on 90.9 WBUR, we explore humanity and all its imperfections, lost baggage, Kool-Aid mishaps, and not eating enough fruit. Stay with us for the whole gamut of human imperfection, beginning at 6 on the radio and the WBUR app.
WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is appreciated, but it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And Groton Hill Music Center presenting Nickel Creek, live March 15th. Dining and free parking less than an hour from Boston. GrottonHill.org slash tickets. Alexei Navalny's team confirmed his death in a Russian prison Friday, but says his body hasn't been returned. Meanwhile, Russia arrested hundreds of mourners around the country who brought flowers to memorials to victims of political oppression. Hungary's prime minister says his parliament could ratify Sweden's application to join NATO when the body opens a new session later this month. Hungary has been the last holdout. And in northern Virginia, authorities say one firefighter is dead, 10 others injured after an apparent propane explosion leveled a house. There's no official word on the cause as of yet. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Camila Dominoski. World leaders and defense ministers are gathering in Germany for the Munich Security Conference. The high-profile summit is a chance to discuss pressing global security issues, and this year, the war in Ukraine and the United States' relationship to it are top issues. That's because support for Ukraine has become a point of tension in Congress, as many Republicans oppose sending more aid. U.S. Senator Chris Coons is a Democrat representing Delaware. He's a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and is attending the conference with a bipartisan group of lawmakers. Senator, welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks. Great being on with you, Camila. So this summit is happening amid this debate over Ukraine aid in Congress and just days after former President Trump made comments that suggest he might not support NATO allies if elected again. What kinds of pointed questions are you getting from U.S. allies there? Virtually every meeting that we've had here, the question of whether or not the Congress of the United States will pass robust funding to sustain Ukraine's brave fight against Russian aggression has been front and center. One of the key things that happened here in Europe just before the Senate passed uh, the supplemental funding bill was that the European Union approved a $50 billion four-year support package for Ukraine. We met earlier today with President Zelensky, who made it blindingly clear that Ukrainian troops who continue to fight on the front line against Russian aggression are now um, having to ration their artillery, 
are beginning to lose ground and are eagerly awaiting the next uh, resupply of American arms and financial support. And what's your answer to these questions? What do you say will be happening? Well, the Senate voted by a margin of 70 to 29 to advance a $95 billion aid package that includes support for Ukraine, support for Israel, significant humanitarian support for both Gaza and Ukrainians and other countries, as well as investment in our Indo-Pacific partners. There's also a delegation here from the House, and a group of us have been sitting, meeting, and talking with our House of Representatives colleagues about what is their path forward for passing this through the House of Representatives once we return. And, Senator, if Congress can't pass the aid package for Ukraine, are there any workarounds the administration can do, surplus funds or executive actions to to meet the need that you're describing? Not that I'm aware of. Um, The first briefing that our delegation got was with General Cavoli, who is the four-star army general who's in charge of all U.S. forces in Europe. Uh, And he gave a fairly bracing briefing on exactly that question on what options there might be, on what the consequences will be on the battlefield if the U.S. does not continue to be a close and reliable partner. I want to turn to another big topic at this conference, Gaza. The death toll there is approaching 30,000 people. How can the U.S. use its leverage to reduce civilian casualties? Well, I think our president uh, and our secretary of state, who's also been at this conference, our vice president, who spoke at this conference continue to make the point simultaneously that we recognize and support Israel's right of self-defense, its obligation to defend its own people from Hamas, which carried out a horrific attack on Israeli civilians on October 7th. Yet Israel is also obligated to conduct its war against Hamas according to the international standards, the expectation that they will minimize civilian casualties. Part of the conversations we've had uh, here are about the importance of delivering humanitarian aid by every means possible into Gaza and uh, encouraging or pressuring Israel uh, to conduct the remaining campaign against Hamas in a way that avoids and reduces civilian casualties. Senator, you and other U.S. leaders have been encouraging Israel to conduct this campaign in a way that protects civilian lives for months now. Is that working? There have been some changes. Um, Israel has withdrawn um, several of its combat battalions uh, from Gaza. There have been, I think, positive impacts on settler violence in the West Bank as a result of President Biden's issuance of sanctions against those who were encouraging or facilitating settler violence. But frankly, it hasn't been enough. Um, Because Hamas is embedded underneath Gaza, because they've used tunnels and Um, put their storehouses and the place where they're holding hostages uh, now for hundreds of days underneath civilian infrastructure. It is difficult, but it is reasonable of us to expect Israel to conduct the remainder of its campaign against Hamas in a way that follows international uh, civilian standards. Are there other sources of leverage the U.S. can use to be more persuasive in these conversations with Benjamin Netanyahu? I think President Biden has done everything he can um, to apply um, leverage to be persuasive of Prime Minister Netanyahu. The other issue that is right in front of us 
is the commitment to a two-state solution, something that most of the leaders of other countries we met with restated that for decades they've been committed to a two-state solution, as is the United States. One of the most frustrating aspects of engaging with Prime Minister Netanyahu has been his steadfast opposition to a two-state solution. Only if there is some path towards security, dignity, um, and self-governance for the Palestinian people can we be optimistic about the future. And this is a real pinch point in the U.S.-Israel relationship. How realistic at this point do you think it is to pursue a two-state solution? It is very difficult, um, both because of circumstances on the ground, things that the Israeli government have done uh, over the last years that make it harder and harder to actually achieve that, and frankly, because of the understandable trauma of the Israeli people. Um, when there has been this uh, terrible terrorist attack, and there are ongoing daily attacks on Israel's security, but in the bigger picture, in the longer term, the possibility of reconciliation with Saudi Arabia, recognition, the end to the Arab-Israeli conflict that has lasted for decades, and the achievement of regional and lasting peace has to be the thing um, that we lift up in conversations, both with regional um, partners, potential partners, and with Israeli leaders. Senator Coons, I want to go back to the question of aid. As you noted, sufficient aid is simply not getting into Gaza at this point. Uh, would you support the United States joining countries like Jordan in airlifting aid into Gaza? Yes. Is that a topic of conversation at the conference? Yes. Um, the head of the World Food Program, Cindy McCain, is here, uh, and I am going from here to the region where I'll be meeting with the leaders of all the regional humanitarian organizations. About two weeks ago, I had a virtual meeting from Delaware, my home state, uh, with the heads of a whole range of nonprofits that are active in Gaza that are providing humanitarian support. We have to do everything we reasonably can, whether it's by sea lift, by air, by getting the Erez gate at the very northern end of Gaza opened. We have to pursue every means possible to deliver humanitarian aid into Gaza to avoid an escalation of the current humanitarian catastrophe. That's U.S. Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware. He joined us from the Munich Security Conference in Germany. Thank you. Thank you. Finally today, Brontez Purnell is a musician, dancer, and writer who brings a punk rock vibe to all those mediums. His new book is Tin Bridges I've Burnt, a memoir in verse. It tackles life as a queer black man from Alabama to Oakland with no holds barred. I chatted with him recently and asked him to begin by reading a poem that meant a lot to him. This one is called I Am Decided. I said to my gay uncle when I was 20, boys don't like me. Not even looking up from the fried chicken he was breading for dinner, he said to me, honey, go look outside that window there and on the sidewalk. You'll see that in San Francisco, even the trash gets picked up once a week. <laughs> Why that poem? Um, because <laughs> it was a great thing to hear at the age of 20. We never enjoy being young and... We look back at pictures and think, why did I ever have low self-esteem? I 
should have went to Atlanta and married a basketball player. I should have been, you know, stuck in the Bay making surf rock. But I always, I look at that poem and I giggle. Um, and it's always nice when some older person says to you, honey, you're just enough. Yeah. <laughs> but so. also calls you trash along the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, even the trash, even the trash gets picked up. The poems in this collection are honest, vulnerable, and hilarious. As we talked, I asked why he called this poetry collection a memoir. I do believe that for marginalized people, um, women, people of color, gay people, all types of stuff, we are most seriously considered when we call something a memoir. Something has to be pulled directly from our gut and our visceral experience in order for us to be, you know, considered something worthwhile or reading. It always has to be a first-hand account. So I called it a memoir where even in some parts, it's still a pack of lies. Um, <laughs> and I also was hoping that I would get canceled the same way that New York Times person got canceled that time for pretending something was memoir. Um, but no one ever seems to cancel me like that. I don't, none of my books get banned in Florida. It really hurts my feelings. There's still time. <laughs> There's still time. Yeah, I have my fingers crossed. I loved your poem, Graduation, which talks about how we watch too much TV and like things to be linear. Could you read some of Graduation on, on page 119? Forgive me for being too grand, but allow me just for once in my life to say, if all space became one building, my body, and all time one second, my lifetime, it could stand to reason that I am the only God here. I am the only witness to this body. I have learned to love the hundred pounds I have gained over the last two years. For no other reason than I viscerally feel the effects of gravity more, the wave of invisible attraction to the earth becomes more evident the heavier I become, either in body or mind. You know, I'm really struck by how bodily this poem becomes how how physical and I, I'm wondering you you know you are also a dancer can you talk about how in your work you engage with the body and also the the divine the sacred in that in that part not to get what was what's the line not to get too grand oh no not at all um well I mean I also think um yeah I, I do think I, I spent I spent a decade dancing in professional companies. Um, but then also really when I got to the point of me, you know, only knowing English, but then one day realizing that dance was another language. Like when you're in ballet class and for years the teacher says, spread toes to push up. And you're like, what on earth is she talking about? But then one day, one day I was in class, this was maybe four years ago. I just, I actually like, it really sunk in that like, it's not even about spreading the actual toes. It's about the energetic feel, the synapse of feeling your toes flattening to the ground to go up. That's how you hold stability in a releve. And that's when it dawned on me that I had learned another language. It took me somewhere close to 15 years to finally put the language into my body. So I can only imagine how some people feel about words, you know? It takes a lot of people a long time to understand what it means to sit inside a consciousness, to have a mind and to have a body. And dear God, to get both those things to work at the same time takes a lot of work. So I do think that's what my poetry gets at. 
Yeah, there's a moment in one of your poems where you or the speaker is passed out on the ground and says, don't worry about me. I'm basking in my celestialness. I was like, on the ground, in a body, but also celestial at the same time, right? Truly, truly. Especially if you have danced to the point of passing out, it does feel pretty celestial. Or maybe there's just no oxygen getting to your brain, so you feel godlike. Can you read one more poem for us, um, Rage of Every Color? Rage of Every Color. You want to see me explode into colors, don't you? If I could dream of every night and be so quick to silence it, annihilate each laid brick of the house I retrofit, you deliberately misinterpret me like constantly. See me only as the man who represents the 10 bridges I've burnt, but not the 100 I've built. Girl, forget you. Whether or not multiplicity is to your taste, I shall give you a feast. So why did you choose to call this book Ten Bridges I've Burnt, which you lay out there as a misinterpretation of you? Okay, let's be very clear here. To say it quite honestly, this book was originally supposed to be called Oath of Athenian Youth. Mm. But I think everyone was kind of like, Brontes, only Ann Carsons can get away with calling something Oath of Athenian Youth. We mm. have to get your book to sell. So Ten Bridges I've Burnt is... I think is a sexier title um, and it does throw more of a brick but I also I don't know I do I do think it's it's fitting I was worried about it feeling very like indicting or something like that but I do think it's about um, I do like the way that it's a part of the book that's it's a line um, describing how the person being interpreted has been misunderstood and I think only the people that actually catch that, I think that's who this book is truly for. Before we let you go, I would love it if you could also just read the acknowledgments for us. I would like to thank the Alabama public school system for gifting me irony, foreshadowing, rage, and the secular witchcraft that is literature. Also, my eighth grade writing teacher, the rabbi's wife, who gifted me banned literature. I don't have a question about that. I just love it. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Purnell is the author of Oath of Athenian Youth, also known as Ten Bridges I've Burnt. Thanks so much for talking with us. Anytime. It was amazing. 